So yeah, let's grab a piece of paper, pencil, pen. If you're going to be using an uh, electronic device, totally fine. What I want you to start thinking about here, and I'm going to give you a minute to actually put your ideas and your thoughts on paper in the form of shapes and uh, hopefully recognizable shapes in um, drawings, not just in words, but I want you guys to feel free to uh, tap into the other part of your brain because uh, you, you do use different parts when we actually draw things out. And so that's what we're going to do together. But I want you guys to start thinking about how does God see me? How does God see you this morning? How does God see you sitting right here? That's kind of a big question, if you will. But it's done that way on purpose. So why don't you guys, I'm going to give you guys a minute or two and draw that out. How you feel like God sees you right now, this morning. Some of you guys are like, I don't even know. As you guys can continue to draw feverishly. Even when you think about how God sees you, right? It does, it fluctuates, right? There's some days where you feel like, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. God must be really, really pleased with me. Maybe there are some days where you feel that every day. I don't know. You just walk around and say, man, I have God's gift. Literally, he put me here for all of you. I, 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 don't, I don't know how you're feeling. You know, maybe there are some days where you just feel like, ah, man, I would just be lucky if God would even look at me today. Can God even cast his view upon me? Or has he turned his back on me and walked the other way? I don't know. How do you feel this morning? How do you feel this morning about how God sees you? I'm still drawing there. You guys make a masterpiece. Now, today's title is Good Enough. And the reason why I chose Good Enough is because, uh, I would say, if you were to ask me, Jeff, how would you want God to see you? I would say, just good enough. Just good enough. I don't, it's kind of like uh, Goldilocks, right? You know, it's like, hey, I don't want to be awesome and have God always looking at me, you know, and, or even think higher of myself than I should, you know, but then I don't want God to not notice me or God to think too lowly of me. I want to be right there in the middle, good enough. Just good enough to be noticed, but not noticed. Now, I think a lot of us, we may share similar feelings. Maybe that you just want to be good enough in the eyes of God. So how does God see you right now? Maybe this is something, like I said, that you haven't given much thought to at all. Maybe it's caused you to pause this morning. Or maybe you feel extremely confident in how God sees you, whether that's good or bad. But my goal today is for you, all of us to leave here with a newfound security and how we stand before God. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be picking up Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. We have been studying through this letter. It's been great. We're on our way to being able to finish it out by 
the new year. Alright, let's start here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tra- uh, tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And Christ in you has been brought to fullness. He is the head of every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it um, away, nailing it to to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now here, Paul, he takes a little pause, if you will, in his, in his letter and what he's been trying to preach to the uh, church here. And he takes a pause because he wants to fireproof the disciples, fireproof the Christians here from outside um, attack, whether it be philosophy or tradition. Because what was happening here was that they were wanting to add something more to Christ. They were saying that my, that Jesus isn't enough for me. And what Paul wanted to make sure was that no, you have Christ and he's more than enough. It says here that the church, he didn't want them to be taken captive. This word that he uses is actually kidnapped or be thrown into slavery. Or it could be, the other way that it could be is to be seduced. To be pulled over to new teachings that Jesus isn't enough for you. That you need something more. That you need something else other than the grace and the salvation given to you by Jesus himself. And Paul was just wanting to stop and say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? This is more than enough. So he wants to take a pause and to camp out. On this passage right here. So they all understand the true incredible picture of salvation and grace. I want to start off here um, with a story. This is actually, uh, I want to tell you guys about um, Erin Massey. She's actually a campus disciple in um, Chicago. She was a part of our campus ministries there when Kelly and I lived there. So she is your sister in Christ. And um, you know, November 8th. As you can see the date there, 2014, you can see it says, uh, I love the kingdom, meaning, hey, this. Not only did Gino Pack, another one of the disciples there, come over to fix my uh, computer, but he brought me my favorite Italian dish, gnocchi, not gnocchi, gnocchi. And he is helping me with some heavy lifting of old furniture I need to get rid of. And there's a little excited face there. You know, a normal day for her. Normal day, you know... Someone comes over, helps out with their, you know, computer. It's just a, uh, just a normal day yeah. as a disciple. After this, she decided she would go to a movie, a late night showing. And on her way home, 
This is what happened. I'll actually just read you her own words. It says, on the police report, it says that approximately at 1.30 a.m., I was hit head-on by a drunk driver traveling northbound in the southbound lanes. But my memory ends several minutes right before the crash. The first memory I have is being rolled headfirst into an ambulance. I found out later that I had um, ex um, extricated, I was um, extricated from the vehicle because of the extent of the damage. After the firemen were able to pry me out of the car, I was told I was lucid in talking. That I had lost conscious, consciousness on um, impact. So much had happened during those vital moments directly following the crash that I couldn't remember any of it. Science says that when your body's in shock, the brain stops making memories because it's so concerned only on survival. I don't know this then, but my, I, I didn't know this then, but my organs were seeping and my spine was in shock. I was slowly dying. When my brain was turned on again um, to be rolled into the um, ambulance, I had no idea where I was or what had happened to me. I could barely speak. All I could think about was the pain, so much pain. The paramedic came over to me, grabbed me um, by, um, by the hand and said, you're lucky to be um, alive. People do not survive accidents like this. And then Erin was told that she would never walk again. She was just driving home. The drunk driver jumped on the wrong side of the road, hit her head on. You know, this, is, this, was Aaron's, this was Aaron's life here. This was the moment in time of her life. And I love the fact that we have social media that we can take these snapshots. Ironically enough, she posts that picture not knowing, but a couple hours later, that everything will be changed. But if we fast, fast forward here to the trial date. This is a post written by her sister, who is also um, a disciple, describing the trial itself of this, of this drunk driver. And, and um, her, I'll just read you her post. It says, I don't know how to explain what happened today and what it even means. Aaron Massey and our family received justice and the criminal case is over. Aaron and I had our chance to testify. Aaron spoke directly to the um, offender and offered her forgiveness. Next, something unprecedented. The um, offender had no prepared statement but stood up, sobbed, accepted full responsibility, and acknowledged that she still has her life despite 18 months of incarceration, while Aaron doesn't. She said over and over how sorry she was, and that there was no um, excuse. She apologized to all of us. The sobs got louder in the courtroom. The judge told her to go with the officer. Aaron yelled out, wait. She asked if she could hug her. Aaron and the offender stood in the middle of the courtroom, clinging to each, to each other, sobbing, and the offender kept saying, I'm sorry. Both sets of parents, wails got louder, and the courtroom lost it. My mom and her mom held each other while sobbing. I hugged her brother. Every member of the family hugged every other member while, while sobbing. Dennis Rawlings, that's the, the, on the other side of the family, um, apologized, and we all sobbed together. Aaron and I talked with her brother about finding out where she was and if we could go visit her, if, if, um, if she would even um, have us. We all walked out in a daze, not believing it was over, and not believing that it ended like that. After the torture it had been for two years, I could not be prouder of my sister or my family. Forgiveness is a profound thing. Thank God and Jesus for teaching us forgiveness. Yes. I, think we, I think we hear a story like that, and, and, and it, it, it does, it takes us back. We're just like... I don't, know if I, could, I don't know if I would be strong enough to do that in that moment. Wow. Seeing what had happened, I don't know if I could be that strong. 
and offer that type of forgiveness. And it is. It's powerful. It's moving. I think sometimes we take that exact feeling and we say, that's how it was with me and Jesus. I was the drunk driver. I knew what I was doing and I smacked into my life's sin, Jesus, God, whatever it is that you want to call it. And you know what he was willing to offer me? Forgiveness. And we say, that's the extent of, I, I get it. That is grace. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not it. That's just good enough. God's forgiveness and grace is much, much more than just forgiveness for your sins. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. It's not just forgiveness. You're not just good enough. You're so much more than that. Now, verse 14, it talks about the idea that our debt has been canceled. No, we do. We carry a debt with us. This debt is our sin. This debt is your lies, your deceit, your pride, your impurity. You name it. This is the debt that you carry along with you. According to Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. This is what we carry around with us outside of Christ. And the debt that Paul is talking about here is even one step further than that. This debt that Paul is referencing is one that was written in your own hand. You agreed, you actually wrote out your own terms of this contract that you were stepping into. You full well knew everything that you were signing off. Saying, hey, this is the debt, I understand. If I don't pay this, these are the consequences. And most of the time, the consequences for you not paying that debt was your children were taken into slavery. And so the idea of debt to the, to the reader of this letter was even bigger than our idea of debt, saying, well, you know what? Someday I'll pay it off slowly. No, this was a huge, yeah. huge deal. And Paul is saying, with Christ, your debt is canceled. Not taken away, not a second chance, literally canceled, yeah. as if it never happened. Wow. This is not a heartwarming story like we just... like. Like I just read to you here. This is not something that just makes you feel good. No, this is more than that. This is your sin, your debt that separates you from God. Taken away, canceled as if it was never there. Wiped away, literally. Wiped away. No more ink on the page. And when you think about this idea of forgiveness versus actually having it be canceled or taken away, any of us that is married understands this better than you even think. Let me give you an example. <laughs> let's say your wife asks you to do the dishes. And let's say, I don't know, hypothetically, you don't do it. And then she asks you again. And again. And again. And, you know, hypothetically, it's not getting done. You know, I'm just saying. And perhaps that's happened to you. And, you, and your wife, you know, rightfully so, kind of gets a little frustrated. She comes to you and explains her frustration. You ask for forgiveness. She says yes. And you move on, right? And she says yes. Can you do the dishes tomorrow? You say yes, but guess what? You forget. Does she remember all those other times? Absolutely she does. She says, I forgive you, but I still remember all those other times. Right? That is still forgiveness. But she still has knowledge of what happened before. Our debt. When it's canceled, it's literally taken away. No more knowledge of past um, events or hurts or our sin towards God. Wow. That's how God sees you this morning. That our debt is canceled because we are made alive through Christ. And um, 
I want to bring you guys through this real quick. What, it, what Paul is actually saying here is, if you see us and our debt and our sin, now we over, on the other side, we'll see Jesus. And of course, Jesus has no sin, no debt. But the next, something happens. Here in this passage, it talks about how we're buried with Christ. Not just with Him, but co-buried. It's equal. It's one and the same, that we are literally co-buried with Him. The next, it says that we are co-raised with Him. Now, but why? Now, that in itself, you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. I get it. But here is the incredible part. The idea of being alive with Christ is actually the same words. Co-buried, co-raised, and co-alive. Like, literally, you are alive on the same level as Christ. That is how you look to God. This morning, as you are raised and co-live with Him. So it's not just that your sin was taken away. Not that your sin was just canceled. But then God literally added Jesus' righteousness to you. So that you live alongside with Christ. When he looks down at you from heaven, he sees Christ. He doesn't see your past sins. He doesn't even remember those. Those are gone. He sees only Christ. You know, imagine, let's say um, Federico's here. Let's say Fed and I share a deep love for uh, an incredible um, football team, uh, namely the Redskins. Um, Let's say the Redskins make it to the Super Bowl. <laughs> you guys didn't have to laugh. Man. Talking about not keeping a record of wrongs, you know? I mean, any given Sunday, right? You know? um, let's say the Redskins go to the Super Bowl and, you know, more willing, they win the Super Bowl. It's amazing. There's a, yes. It's an amazing day. Let's say, let's say Fed and I get tickets to, to uh, said Super Bowl. And uh, we are there. We are cheering them on. And they win. And Fed and I run out to the field. And we're just like, you know, hugging on like the players. And we're just loving the moment. And then what do you know? The players turn to Fed. They pick him up and raise him on his shoulders. And they're touting him around the field. Shouting his name. Say, Federico, you did this. You made us win. You were the guy. And that's just like, he's, he's keeping quiet at this moment. He's just like, I'm loving this. Not only is my team winning, but they think I did it. <laughs> they bring him up on stage in Super Bowl MVP. And they're like, Fed, Super Bowl MVP, here's a trophy. He's there, he's kissing it, you know, a little, and he's just got, he's got, he's got his hat on, the confetti's going. Everybody's cheering for him. And he's like, yes, this is amazing. But he knows that he didn't do anything. He knows he didn't deserve that moment, that honor, that celebration, that recognition. Let's throw one more thing in there. Let's just say hypothetically, he's a Cowboys fan. Makes it even worse. They're still touting him and, and enjoying him and saying, this is our man. This is the guy. He said, but you didn't do anything. It's like, well, I'm going to... That's what it's like being, in, being co-alive with Christ. Yeah. that you didn't do anything. In fact, you're the Cowboys fan. You're worse. Yeah. <laughs> how, come there's no, how come there's no laughter on that one? Because, 
It does. It represents sin and the depravity of man. Um, amen. That's why I have the microphone. You guys are up there. Um, <laughs> we'll find out on uh, Thanksgiving Day, won't we? Uh, we'll see how um, awkward that sermon is. Uh, but anyways, this is us in Christ. Is that we didn't play. We didn't show up. We didn't score the winning touchdown. In fact, we were probably rooting against him. But yet, we were brought up and presented in front of everybody as, man, this is my son and my daughter. We are alive with Christ. This is a big deal. That our sin and our debt is canceled. Now we are made alive in Christ. Because, as it says here, that we were condemned by God because of our actions. Now, our sin, it not only separates us, but it makes us an enemy of God um, as well. And that's now wiped away. You know, in Revelations 20, it talks about how on Judgment Day, there's going to be a book of life, which is going to have all the names of those written in it that are making it into heaven to celebrate with Jesus. And then there are other books. In these books are all of our, all of our sins written down. And it says that, you know, those that are names that are read uh, out, out loud from the book of life, they move on into heaven. But those of us that have other books, we, all of our sins are read out loud. And we're condemned, thrown into the fiery pit of, of um, hell. Now let me present something to you. In Christ, there is no book. You have no book. There is nothing for it to be read out, um, out loud. Your name is read in the book of life. And then God looks over and he says, I didn't realize you fed the 5,000. I didn't realize you healed the blind. I didn't realize that you preached to the multitudes. I didn't realize that you laid down your life for others. I didn't realize that you looked just like my son, Jesus. We no longer have a book of our record of wrongs, of our sin before us. It is taken away, canceled. Not condemning us at all. You know, Paul knew this better than anybody else. He knew the power of this. I mean, if we look back, you know, let's turn there in Acts chapter 9. He was literally breathing murderous threats, as it says, towards the Christians. Here's a man that was literally persecuting the church to a point of killing them. Whether it was his own hands or him saying, yes, you may kill this individual because he follows Christ. But now this man is confronted by God. And in that moment, it's interesting because he calls him Lord repeatedly over and over again. Jesus, Lord. He understands what's going on in this moment. That there is a moment of mercy needed on his part. Instead of God, understandably, and even righteously being able to duel out judgment on Paul. He picks him up and says, you're going to be my chosen guy to preach to the world. You're going to be my man to spread the gospel. You think Paul didn't understand exactly what he was writing? He knew. Because this was his life. This is your life in Christ. But how is this even all possible? It says here, it's through the waters of baptism. You know, and uh, let's check this out real quick. Come on, Jeff. Awesome. I know if you guys saw this on Tuesday night, we got Brian. Come on, Brian. Boom. Amen. Amen. Come on, 
right? He turns around. Baptizes his wife. Yes, <laughs> Boom. Right there. Amen. You know, did you guys see it? Did you, did you see it? It was that moment. That exact moment that they were submerged under the water, that everything we just talked about happens. Their debt's canceled. Done. Doesn't exist. They are co-alive with Christ. No longer condemned in the eyes of God in that exact moment. I don't know if you noticed it right there. Did you, did you see that flash of light? Did you see God himself come down? It was in that moment. The same moment that you and I experienced. If you were a baptized disciple of Christ this morning. In that moment, they are marked by God. It says here, they are, it talks about baptism is related to circumcision. That being that, that marks you as God's own people. No longer an enemy, but in fact, his own people. And then you, like Christ, as it says here, are triumphant over sin, over Satan, and over death. All through those waters of baptism. But here's the interesting thing. Is why has this become a sticking point for us? Why has this become a sticking point even when it is so clear and so incredible what happens? Just the idea of baptism itself. Why is that a sticking point? I think for the exact same reasons that Paul addresses it here. Because there are hollow and deceptive philosophies and traditions that start to take over and start to shy us away from baptism. You know, philosophy then, what Paul was trying to go after was that the people themselves were trying to find something deeper in life. That they had to find something, some magical truth to unlock doors for them to actually be righteous, for them to make it into heaven. That baptism itself wasn't enough. And how true is that today? Very, very similar that we, that, you know, society tells you, you don't need baptism. You don't need Jesus. You don't need God at all. In fact, you just have to figure out the secret of life on your own. You've got to search for happiness. You've got to search for your own fulfillment. You don't need God. Yeah. And the same thing begins to happen. We are taken captive. We're taken as slave. We're seduced by the world's slick arguments and pulled away. Or even talk about tradition. Come on. The false doctrine that baptism is not necessary. We're going to take a pause and I'm going to address some of these. You know, maybe that baptism is a work. And that God himself, grace is absolutely not about works. So how can you tell me that I need baptism in order to be saved? You know, our debt is not ripped away from us by our own hands. In fact, it says in here, not by human hands. Amen. Our debt is not your work at all. Trust me, there's nothing you can do. In fact, all you did was create a string of death behind you. That you were dead in your sins. But who saves you? God. It's God's own hand, not yours. So, it's not a work by you whatsoever. In fact, it's, if you really want to talk about it, it's a work by God. A work of grace. Perhaps it's saved by faith. 
here talks about you know, the idea that faith is involved, but it's not faith in yourself. If you read it closely, it says faith in Jesus. Amen. Not faith in you. Not faith that you just somehow believe. No, it's faith in Jesus. And what does Jesus tell you to do? Get baptized. Right. Just, I'm just reading the scripture here. Amen. Maybe it's that you were saved or that you were made um, alive in Christ sometime before your baptism. Maybe it was through some deep prayer, connection, or a moment that you had that changed your life. Let me put this question before you. Then is, why is burial for the dead, not the alive? It talks about here that we have been buried with Christ, meaning that we are dead. If you've made alive in some other way, then why is he saying that you need to be co-buried through baptism and raised, co-raised, through baptism. You follow me with that? Yeah. That for baptism, you are buried because you're dead in your sin. But we love our traditions, don't we? We want to fight for our traditions. My challenge to you is if you're struggling with this, the idea of, is baptism necessary or is it a work? Is it faith? Is it whatever you're struggling with? Look at the scriptures. Amen. Ask someone to read to you. Who cares about your traditions? Throw them out the window. We can't twist the truth yeah. and lean and look towards other things other than Christ. Yeah. We can't be taken into deceptive and hollow arguments. And even as Christians, this is something that we're not safe from. With the idea that Paul is writing to Christians. Yeah, that's right. That I think too often we can get sucked into the um, idea that we need something more than Christ. For us to have the right standing, the righteous standing before yeah. God. That somehow we have to check off our spiritual checklist. And if we haven't, then I don't know how God views me this morning. Or maybe it's that I've fallen into sin as a disciple. And it's a continual pattern of sin. And I, the, the guilt is too much for me. And I'm so God doesn't view me the same way that he used to view me. We've been taken captive by these deceptive arguments. There's no way you can prove or earn your salvation. When you feel this way, when you have this guilt or you try to add on to it, all you're doing is saying, Jesus isn't enough for me. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't big enough for my sin, God. That couldn't be further from the truth. What Paul wanted to present was a rock-solid idea of who we were in Christ. So why is this a big deal? Why does Paul take a pause and address this? Because we need to see the power in our baptism. We need to see exactly who we are in Christ. But more than that, we need to carry this around with us with the understanding that we are in Christ. Not just good enough, but as recreated, co-alive with Him, as God's people, as canceled debt, our sin nailing it to the cross, and victorious over Satan and this world. What if you saw yourself the way God sees you every day? What if you woke up Knowing exactly, if you held that in your head, the way that God sees you. What if you read this passage every morning and you just got up and this was, man, this is going to be my theme scripture for today. This is how God sees me. You're not puffing yourself up. This isn't false, you know, this isn't pride. This is you literally viewing yourself the way God sees you. Amen. Two of the reasons why we don't do this is that we just don't think about it. Sadly, as, as Christians, we don't think about this enough. We think about the things that we have to do or the things that we haven't done. Yeah. Instead of holding on to this truth. 
maybe it is that you feel guilt and um, accused before God. You don't see yourself as vi- uh, victorious any longer. We've got to hold on to this church. This has got to become our motivation. This has to become our spark, if you will. When you think about how, how a motor works, you guys are all familiar with you know, a combustion motor. Three things go into a combustion motor, right? 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 Okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you. I'm going to tell you. It's got silence there for a moment. like, all right, man. Air, fuel, and spark. Let's just say that air is the Holy Spirit, right? It's what pushes you. It's, you got that in you. Fuel, let's say, is God's love. It's the fellowship. You got everything, all the incredible things that God gives you. Let's say the spark is God's grace. The spark is what ignites all of that together, allowing that motor to go, allowing for that explosion to happen. He says, and I'm putting it before you, this has to be our life. That we are set, that we are set on fire by grace. It is the spark that ignites our life to live for Christ. But what about you, Christian, this morning? What about you this morning? Let's turn and close here in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, he says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there and came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Verse 39, it reads, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who was touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Sound familiar? Now which of them will he love more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Stop right there. The woman knew exactly who she was in Christ. This woman knew exactly the power that Jesus had and was willing to give her. Simon was caught up in something else. Caught up in traditions. Caught up in um, philosophy. And he missed the picture completely. He missed the fact that this woman's grace, the grace that was given to her, is what drove her. Is what drove her. And he is standing there criticizing Jesus. But what about you this morning? Do you see yourself as good enough? As more than good enough in the eyes of God? And that your debt has been wiped clean. You have no longer condemned. But you're co-alive with Christ himself. And that should be what drives us. That should be what wakes us up in the morning. But let me say this. If you haven't been baptized, this doesn't apply to you. This whole sermon doesn't apply to you. You haven't been made alive with Christ. Your debts have not been forgiven. And you stand condemned. Before God. 
I want to urge you, I want to plead with you. Please ask the person that invited you out. Ask them to sit down and study the Bible with you to show you these passages. To show you the truth, not based on traditions or based on good um, just um, ideas, but based on the scriptures themselves. Amen. Say, show me, how do I get this? And for us that are disciples, we got to see ourselves as who we are in Christ. So my challenge is I want you guys to redraw that picture this week. I want you to redraw that picture. And if you've got to read this passage again, go ahead and read it. But I want you to redraw this picture about who you really are in Christ. Or if you're not a baptized disciple, who you want to be in Christ. I want you to spend some time and draw this. And I want you to carry this with you. I want you to fold up that piece of paper. I want you to stick it in your pocket. I want you to remember this throughout your week. I want this to be your drive, your spark to live for Him. Your spark to act and live a life of grace. Because you're not good enough, church. You're more than good enough. Amen. Thank you.